If I listen long enough to you I'd find a way to believe that it's all true Knowing that you lie straight face while I cry Still I look to find a reason to believe Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Tobolowski Files, a series of stories about life, love, and Hollywood as told by actor Stephen Tobolowski. I'm David Chen, editor-at-large at SlashFilm.com, and joining me today, he is the man who played Daniel Rudolph on the TV series Blunt Talk, Stephen Tobolowski. Stephen, how are you doing today, sir? I'm doing very good, and I get all just kind of teary-eyed over the mention of Blunt Talk because I believe that show uh, is not coming back for another season. But I did get to appear in, I believe, the penultimate show of the final season. And the best part about Blunt Talk, besides the wonderful cast and characters, is a fun show to do, is meeting Patrick Stewart. Patrick Stewart. Uh, During breaks, Patrick Stewart would tell stories of his boyhood doing Shakespeare in, in the in the outs, outlands of England, and he told one story that was just amazing, David. He was 19 years old, and they were doing the play Twelfth Night, and Patrick Stewart said that he had a small part in Act One and a small part in Act Two, and he watched the play every night, and as a bar bet, as a bar bet, he, he would tell people that for a free beer, he could recite the entire play by heart and not make more than 10 mistakes as a bar bet. Now, just, just do the math on this. How long would it take for Patrick Stewart to recite the entire play of Twelfth Night? Plus, you have to have somebody on book to make sure he doesn't make more than 10 mistakes to get a beer, to get a beer. This is why... England conquered the world, and this is why they aren't doing much right now. That is uh, really impressive. Twelfth Night, I've just looked it up, as you've been telling this story, has 19,837 words, Stephen. It's quite a lot of words to remember and recite from memory. Um, But, you know, Stephen, speaking of reciting vast things, (laughs) (laughs) speaking of reciting vast corpuses from memory. Yes, uh, the question has often come up on this podcast, fans who listen, uh, people at our live shows, you yeah. tell incredibly lengthy, detailed stories from when you were five years old, 10 years old, 20 years old, uh, things that, you know, basically things that happened like a million years ago, right? Like <laughs> hundreds of years ago. I'm, and, I'm feeling closer to the grave <laughs> as you speak, David. <laughs> and the question is, uh, how do you remember all those things? This feels like it's impossible to do. Oh, well, that's interesting. Now, it is true. It is true, David. Now, people have always asked me how I remember so much, but I think the truth is that I don't. No, I, David, I recently found a diary that I kept when Beth and I went to graduate school at the University of Illinois, and not only did I not remember most of the events, I even forgot I kept a diary, and it was incredibly detailed. I mean, there were pages and pages with diagrams. I listed books I was reading, classes I attended, conversations I had, dreams that woke me up in the middle of the night, thoughts I had walking to campus every morning. There was even a running account of every rehearsal I had with Beth for a scene we worked on for acting class from the play Jimmy Shine. 
Do you remember Jimmy Shine? No, no. I didn't either till I saw my diary. But Dustin Hoffman starred in it on Broadway. Beth and I apparently worked on it for weeks. I have no memory of the play or of the scene. So much that shaped me during that crucial year of my life now only exists in that journal. I tried to piece together basic facts. I was 25 when I wrote the journal. 25. For a bit of perspective, my youngest son William is now 22, my eldest Robert is 27, so in the pages of this diary, I'm the middle child. As I read through the book, my first reaction was, How awful I was. Almost every entry was filled with criticism for everyone and everything around me. I insult my new classmates, my teachers. I insult trees, sandwiches, even the weather report. To be charitable, you could say that my worldview of anger and fear could be construed as a desperate desire to be heard, a defining characteristic of being 25. Through the cracks of this defensiveness, I began to see the traces of what I recognize as me. I can see a growing love of music, an almost fanatical devotion to the theater, and a new fascination with philosophy. In the pages of my journal, I saw a young man that believed that if he learned enough, he would be able to understand everything. Another characteristic of being 25. I uncovered the factual reason why I kept the diary in the first place. It was an assignment. The first entry on page one reads, Keep a Creative Journal. It was for the class called Visualization, taught by Dr. Bernard Hobgood, a.k.a. Hobb. That name may be familiar for listeners of the Tobolowsky Files. Hobb was my faculty advisor at SMU through the trials and tribulations of Joan Potter, described in the story Conference Hour. When I graduated, Hobb transferred to the U of I and brought Beth and I with him. It's ironic that Hobb, who was a big part of my traumatic passage through undergraduate school, gave me the assignment in graduate school that could have encouraged my habit of note-taking that eventually became the Tobolowsky Files, where I wrote a story about him. Hobb was a better advisor than either of us imagined. As I read these forgotten memories, something strange began to happen. And I would almost put this in the category of magic. Images began to appear before my eyes. Bits and pieces of that year in the frozen Midwest came flying back. And these were not entries in the diary. It was my life between the lines. I saw colors, people, places. I could smell the wet leaves on the ground as I walked to the Cranard Center on my way to class that autumn. I heard laughter at Trinos, our favorite after-school hangout. For a moment, I was in the midst of a happy blur of conversations and could smell the grease from their kitchen and taste their hamburgers. Then a vision of absolutely no importance pushed everything else aside. I was standing next to Vic Patagrosi. Vic was playing the brand new pinball game, the game of games, Fireball. Fireball was the halo of our generation. Vic assumed the classic Vic pose, cap pulled down to his brow, dark framed glasses at the end of his nose, cigarette dangling from his lips. 
He was working the fireball machine hard, explaining how to influence the ball with body English. Vic said forward and back shoves rarely cause a tilt. The pinball mechanism is more sensitive to side-to-side manhandling. I had forgotten that I've always remembered Vic's advice. Pinball is not like a video game. You could never own it. One quarter enabled you to play as long as your skill allowed. For someone like me, it could be two minutes. For a master like Vic Patagrossi, it could be 20, 30 minutes. Or until he got tired and let you finish playing for him while he grabbed a beer. As a beginner, I knew I was going to lose a lot. So I I always carried a $5 roll of quarters in my jeans wherever I went, along with two loose quarters on the side. Now, the reason you keep the loose quarters separate from the roll was that fireball was very, very popular. People lined up to play, but it could take up to an hour for your turn to come up at the machine. So in the meantime, there were hamburgers and fries that had to be eaten. There were pitchers of beer that had to be drunk. So the quarter was a marker. You quietly placed it on the machine while someone was playing. Sometimes there were several quarters in a row ahead of you. Didn't matter. You put your quarter in the line. Usually the next player would come up to you and explain who was next. I never recall anyone cutting in line. We honored the quarter. My love of fireball extended into every facet of my life. I dreamt about bells and flashing lights. I kept imagining the playing area and the spinning central disc that sent the ball flying in unexpected directions at unpredictable speeds. I asked Vic for advice on how to beat the game. Vic just smiled and said, You can't beat the game. That's its beauty. You just have to play it. Eventually you will get better. Your reflexes will sharpen. Vic winked and said, Stephen, it's all about anticipation. I was in my period movement class doing some warm-up stretches. We had spent the last week learning how to walk like people in the Middle Ages. I wanted to do it right in case I ever got a job selling turkey legs at a Renaissance fair. I was doing plies thinking of anticipation in the Zen of Vic Patagrossi when I noticed a couple of the more attractive girls watching me stretch and then whisper to one another. I thought for a moment they were drawn to my lanky Texas charm. They kept staring, and then they began to laugh. I I found it flattering until I realized they were staring at my roll of quarters, mistaking it for my lanky Texas charm. I was embarrassed and decided in the future I should probably carry two rolls of quarters. Sidebar, I found it striking that in my journal there was almost no mention of new women I met at graduate school. Not that I was looking. Beth and I were clearly an item. But I thought the omission was telling. Men are always aware of new women. A man's life is defined by his encounters with women like the rings on the trunk of a tree. I learned love from my mother when I was too young to know anything else. I learned to read from my first-grade teacher, Maddie Lee Smith. I first proposed marriage to Alice Snell Allen when I was five. Love, knowledge, and romance. Everything that makes life worth living, I was taught by females before I was seven. Everything else I learned from James Bond. Nothing in Goldfinger prepared me for the masculine power I possessed at Illinois. Midwestern women flirted with me daily. 
It could have been that I was new meat, as they say in the vernacular. I attribute most of the attention I received to the fact that I had a car and access to a credit card. I have found that this is an intoxicating combination for a woman. It carries the same weight as being a senior on the football team wearing a letter jacket. Yet all of the beauty, all of the talent, all of the intelligence of the new women I met at graduate school did not make it into the journal. Maybe I was embarrassed to write about them. Maybe I thought I was being unfaithful to Beth in the appreciation of another woman's beauty. Or maybe I understood on a molecular level that in life we don't hunt beauty. Beauty hunts us. And despite good intentions, beauty often has its way. I took a break from my journal for the day and went to bed. My overwhelming response after I got used to my nasty top chef critical tone was surprise. Not just for the important people and places I had forgotten, but how many nothing moments that I didn't write down were still there, lurking on the edges of my consciousness. I think, assuming I really remember the smell of wet leaves on my way to class and my games of fireball with Vic Patagrosi, with no physical evidence to support my claims, it is possible I made it all up. I know 1975 into 1976 was a critical year in my life. Major motions of the earth were recorded. I was held hostage at gunpoint in a grocery store. Beth and I left Dallas. Beth decided to become a writer. We left Illinois. I came to Los Angeles. As to the finer details, my diary demonstrates that the past has become the uncomfortable balance of lost and found. The pages of my journal pose a question that sounds more like a subject suited to quantum physics. And it's this, can something be there and not there at the same time? Do we know what we are? What influences us? Can we ever know? The answer to those questions mirror why it's so difficult to understand human history. The story of civilization is a layer cake. It's compiled over periods in which people believe they can know everything and periods in which people believe just as strongly that they couldn't. During the golden age of Greece or the Enlightenment, and today, the beginning of the 21st century, people have found comfort in the worldview that everything can be known. All you needed was the inside of Aristotle, the geometry of Newton, or access to the CERN Large Hadron Collider. But these eras are interwoven with periods in which the prevailing belief was the truth is a mystery, only occasionally revealed through dreams, mystics, magic, and usually some form of loco weed. The flight of a bird, or the phases of the moon, or the movement of the stars can offer a clue to the truth beyond the truth of the world of appearances. These mystical times have been called the Dark Ages, usually by scientists who are out of work. But these periods are not aberrations. They've been just as much of the fabric of civilization as Aristotle's study of physics. When Democritus came up with the theory that the universe was composed of atoms, the oracle at Delphi was just as busy looking at animal intestines to see the future. You would think after the scientific achievements of Galileo and Newton in the 16th and 17th centuries that civilization was ready to be reasonable. But beginning in the 18th century, people turned to seances, hoping to get the real scoop from the dead. When you add it all up, 
Does man prefer Einstein because he was smart or Woodstock because the music was better? The answer is probably both. We've learned that neither can be trusted. Science is often mistaken for truth, and foolishness is often mistaken for romance. So we hedge our bets and believe with equal conviction in Stephen Hawking and Jerry Garcia, even though they could both be hard to follow. I read a long section in my journal where I talk about rehearsing Tom Stoppard's play, Jumpers. I do remember (laughs) Jumpers. I will always remember Jumpers, not for the play, but for the day we closed. That was the day I lost my hair. It fell out by the handful in the shower as I washed out the cans of gray spray paint used to make me look like an 80-year-old man. Proof that sometimes foolishness doesn't look like romance. It looks like the birth of a character actor. I thought I still had a copy of the play somewhere. I asked Anne. She said she was pretty sure she cataloged it. She sat at her computer and a few clicks later, yes, there it was. Under the category Dining Room Library... Location, East Wall, Bay 5, Section, Single Plays, Subsection, J. I found it. Jumpers. Sidebar. Marriage isn't easy. There are always problems. Anne and I have had to deal with many things through the years, some unexpected. In the category of unexpected, in the location called The Last 28 Years, we ran into Section, Hoarding, Subsection, books. It began with our courtship. When we were dating, I bought Anne a set of encyclopedia. I thought it was romantic. Apparently it was. We got married. The set of encyclopedia became less romantic when we had to haul them around to our various addresses. When we had children, so did the encyclopedia. Britannica started sending out yearbooks at $45 a pop. It took me 20 years to get my cancellation request to the proper department. By that time, it didn't matter. We had shelves of books on mushrooms, birds, black holes, fairy tales, school books, school books belonging to children we didn't know, plays, poetry, my Aunt Sarah's books from Dallas, my Aunt Esther's books from Pennsylvania. Rather than get rid of anything, we just kept adding bookcases. When we got married, I thought I knew Aunt. I had no idea. Anne is an organizer. She bought a library program and started cataloging all of our books throughout the house. 4,000 books. 4,000. It took her three years to log them all, but those three years came in handy when I tried to find jumpers. I started thumbing through the old script, hoping some life between the lines would reveal itself. I had notes written in the margin, all of my blocking. Very little of the play itself came back to me. I didn't remember any of the events about which I wrote so passionately in my journal. I do remember the girl who played my wife, Colleen Dodson, now Colleen Dodson Baker. In my journal, Colleen tells me that she was scared to work with me. I don't remember that conversation. We spent hours working on an opening beat that involved the moon. Not a clue. I don't remember the moon. I don't remember the opening beat or the closing beat for that matter. What I do remember is something that didn't make it into the journal. Colleen brought me a thermos of constant comment tea every night. 
In the play, I had to talk a lot. And by a lot, I mean more than any audience could be expected to tolerate. Colleen feared I would lose my voice, hence the tea. Sitting here in the present, I realized that the nightly thermos of tea is why I buy constant comment to this day. I still believe it possesses a magical property. I might be mistaking the power of the tea for Colleen's kindness. All of my jumper journal entries have a connecting theme. They talk about my frustration with rehearsal, my frustration with our director, my inability to understand who I was and what I was saying. Sidebar, I must have been terrible in this play. I I have an entry where I ask to have a private meeting with John, our director. I did some basic detective work. From the date of the entry, I'm guessing the meeting happened sometime during the first two weeks of rehearsal. I describe the meeting in great detail. I ask if there was anything he could recommend to help me understand what my character was talking about in these seemingly endless monologues. John said that many of the ideas of the play came from the theories of Bertrand Russell, and I could take a look at Russell's Principia Mathematica for research. Yeah, that helped a lot. I couldn't even understand the table of contents. Seriously, I had to get a second book to explain the first book, and quite amazingly, the author of the second book got stuck on the table of contents as well. There was a reason. Apparently, Russell set out to write one book, and ended up writing another. His intention was to lay out the groundwork for solving any and all mathematical theorems. But once he got into a subject matter, he discovered he had accidentally stepped into infinity. Any attempt to define all of mathematics resulted in anomalies that did not fit the rules, and each one of those irregularities had irregularities. In trying to define everything, instead... Bertrand Russell mathematically proved that there is a limit to knowledge. I flipped through the pages of my old jumper script. I found one of my incomprehensible speeches. It was surrounded by question marks with one note. Don't do anything. Stand still. Say the words. So here's part of the speech. I'll just say the words. How does one know what it is one believes when it's so difficult to know what it is one knows? There is in mathematics a concept known as the limiting curve. That is the curve defined as the limit of a polygon with an infinite number of sides. For example, if I had never seen a circle and did not know how to draw one, I could nevertheless postulate the existence of circles by thinking of them as regular polygons with numberless edges, so that an old three-penny bit would be a bumpy, imperfect circle, which would approach perfection if I kept doubling the number of its sides. At infinity, the result would be the circle which I have never seen and do not know how to draw but which is logically implied by the existence of polygons. And now and again, not necessarily in the contemplation of polygons or newborn babes, nor in the extremities of pain or joy, but more probably in some quite trivial moment, it seems to me that life itself is the mundane figure which argues perfection at its limiting curve. And if I doubt it, the ability to doubt, to question, to think, 
seems to be the curve itself. Well, it only took 40 years, but I understand the speech now. We are not the givens in a complex mathematical equation. We are the variables. That's why knowing you believe something is different than knowing why you believe something. I closed my creative journal and made another cup of tea. Still I look to find a reason to believe Someone like you makes it hard to live Without somebody else Someone like you makes it easy to give Never thinking of myself Bertrand Russell's dilemma became one of the milestones of modern scientific thought. If you couple his proof that there's a limit to what we can know with an earlier milestone of scientific thought, Isaac Newton's notion that the universe abhors a vacuum and that something will always rush in to fill nothing, it creates a new question. What rushes in to fill the vacuum of our understanding? I would argue that it's probably connected to the first three things I learned before I was seven. Love, knowledge, and romance. I can't prove it, but it does explain giving a set of encyclopedias an engagement gift. It forces us to accept the uncomfortable position that truth and fact can be different, and that both have value. There's even a value to the fact that we can't know everything. Uncertainty can be quite creative. Most of our lives are built on multiple theories of how we got to where we are. I had no idea how to pronounce my last name. No, really. I asked my uncle Nathan, the de facto historian of the family, if I should be saying Tobolowski, Tabalowski, Tablowski. Uncle Nathan said I could pronounce it any way I wanted. It wasn't really my name. What? I said. That's right. It was a mistake. When Grandfather came to America in 1892, he came through Galveston, Texas, not Ellis Island. The officer asked him, Who are you? Grandfather didn't understand English very well. Who sounded like wo, which was German for where. Papa thought the man asked him, Where are you from? So Papa answered in Yiddish, Abraham from Tobolsk. The officer didn't understand him and didn't understand the papa didn't understand his first question. So he wrote down Abraham Tobolowski. I said, so I got my name the same way Don Corleone got his name in The Godfather? I didn't see that movie, honey. Was it good? I wasn't put off by Uncle Nathan calling me honey, even though I was 52 years old and had gray in my beard. He called all of us kids honey as a loving form of disrespect. Yes, Uncle Nathan, it was very good. Well, I hate Marlon Brando, so I didn't go. But that's how you got your name. I left Nathan's house shaken, but somewhat stirred that I had no idea who I was. Rather than being upset that my history was now blank, I found it amusing. I found hope in the idea that sometime in my future, I would be able to understand my past. Two big events happened in May of 1951. I was born, and my maternal grandfather died. My mother's father was Samuel Weinstein. I never knew the man. 
No one told me about him. I have a picture of him smoking a pipe on his front porch, but no mythology attached to it. A few years ago, I received a package from my Aunt Helen in New York. I open it up. There's an old silver pocket watch with no letter of explanation, just a note that said, Grandfather's Watch. I called Helen. She said she was trying to clear out some of the clutter in her apartment in Queens, and she thought I would enjoy the watch. I asked if she knew anything about it. She said she didn't know the story behind it. Grandfather never had a calling. He had a series of odd jobs. One of them, she thought, was a train conductor in Philadelphia or Scranton. The watch could have been the one he used at the station. In an instant... My mind took that one photograph I had a grandfather and put him in a Captain Kangaroo conductor suit and hat. I saw old locomotives blowing off steam and grandfather walking along the tracks, reaching into his vest, pulling out that silver watch and calling out, All aboard! I wondered how old he was when he got the job and if he was already married to Margaret, my grandmother. I wondered if they had any of their seven children yet. I wondered if he drove to work in a Model T and if the car was new or used and if he was proud of it. I wondered if, on the day he bought it, if he stopped in front of the bar around the corner from his house on George Street in Troop, Pennsylvania, bragging to a group of his friends about the car. And after a round of drinks, maybe some of the men came outside with him to have a look. My mind was spinning to fill the vacuum with meaning, even if it was only imagined. I was experiencing the powerful gravitation of mythology, drawing all energy and light to it with a passion to expand. That watch sat on my shelf for years, right by the picture of Grandfather with his pipe. It slept there in silence, waiting for a touch of magic to awaken it. In this case, it was stage magic. I was cast in a production of Uncle Vanya, I was playing Vanya. There's a moment at the top of Act 2 where, according to the script, Vanya looks at his watch. I thought, huh, Chekhov. He wrote at the turn of the 19th and 20th century. Why don't I use Grandfather's watch as a prop in the play? I was on stage one night at the beginning of our run. I pulled out Grandfather's watch to check it according to stage directions, and something odd happened. In a testament to how sloppy my acting process must have been, I really looked at the watch for the first time. And it wasn't a watch. It only had one hand. The numbers on the face went to ten, not twelve. I was flabbergasted. I sat staring at it for a long time. I looked up, everyone on stage, everyone in the audience was staring at me, waiting for me to say the line so the play could continue. I did. But throughout the rest of Act Two, I kept wondering about Grandfather's watch and what the hell it was. I called Anne Helen the next day with the news. She was mystified. I said, this couldn't have been his conductor's watch. It isn't a watch. It doesn't keep time. Conductor, Anne Helen asked. Yes, yes, you said Grandfather was a train conductor in Scranton? Oh, Stephen, I just made that up because the watch looked like a conductor's watch. I don't think he was ever a train conductor. I immediately erased the hard drive in my head. So, you have no idea what this is? No, said Helen. I went to a watch repair store the next day to talk to an expert. He looked at the piece 
He nodded with authority and said it looked like something you would see from the 1920s. It's a timer that measures minutes and seconds and tenths. They use this sometimes in track and field. I thanked him and left the store. I was off with a new narrative. Maybe Grandfather was a coach of some sort at the local school. Troop only had one. Everyone in the family went there. My Aunt Esther even taught there. I called Helen back with my new theory. She said, no, that couldn't be. He wasn't a coach. Oh, but he was a gambler. A gambler, I said. Oh, yeah, he was terrible. He loved hanging out at the racetrack. Maybe used the watch to time the horses. Now I saw Grandfather with pockets full of cash screaming at trackside at the fourth race at Pocono Downs. In a matter of a few days, he went from Captain Kangaroo to Damon Runyon. But of course now, I doubted the horse story. From that point on, whenever I pulled out that watch at the top of Act 2, I was confronted with a new proposition. That everything I knew was wrong. I never found out what Grandfather's watch was or why he used it but the watch has become a different sort of talisman. I began to recognize that so much of our world and the way we respond to it are not based on what we know at all, but on what we don't know. Sometimes the inability to know doesn't stop at simple guesswork. We have experts that don't know either. They wield ignorance with authority. Galileo invented the barometer in the early 1600s, but the powers that be in Rome declared that the barometer couldn't exist. I learned this fact watching a documentary on Galileo produced by the BBC. They claimed that the creation of the barometer was nullified because Italy was a Catholic country. God was everywhere, so it was heresy to propose that there was such a thing as a vacuum. Galileo had to recant. The barometer had to be reinvented by Protestants who had room in their theology to account for changing air pressure. But my grandfather's watch taught me not to trust a story upon first hearing, even if it was on the PBS narrated by a man with an English accent wearing a turtleneck. I did my own research. The barometer became a reality 30 years after Galileo, based on the work not of a Protestant, but of another religious Catholic, Blaise Pascal. The BBC report was wrong. It was based on their own bias that religion is anti-scientific. Another reference I ran across said religion had nothing to do with the squelching of Galileo. The Italian government in the 16th century did not dismiss the barometer because they were Catholic. They dismissed it because they still believed in Aristotle, who claimed air had no weight, thus making a barometer impossible. Just like my grandfather's watch, history was held in the hands of competing mythologies. The BBC used the barometer to demonstrate the stultifying effects of religion on science. Other research demonstrated the stultifying effects of government on progress. I don't claim to know the absolute truth. Like my Aunt Helen... I wasn't there. I only claim that both of these versions demonstrate that the myth we attach to something has arguably as big an effect as the thing itself. Beethoven's Moonlight Sonata is not really Moonlight Sonata. Beethoven never named it that. He called it Fantasia in C-sharp minor when he wrote it in 1801. It was a critic 
1835 who floated the name Moonlight Sonata, claiming the piece described a moonlight boat ride on the water of Lake Lucerne. At the time, there were rumors that Beethoven was infatuated with a 17-year-old student, an Italian countess whom he visited at Lake Lucerne. The mythology and the name stuck. There are two other conflicting accounts on how Beethoven was inspired to write the piece. Beethoven said he wrote it after sitting by the deathbed of a friend, and that the piece is about the passing from life. The constant, rhythmic, broken chords in the treble and the fateful bass octaves represented breath eventually departing from the body. Musicologist William Kinderman had another story behind the piece. Beethoven's apartment in Bonn was across from the town clock. He was having trouble sleeping because the clock was so loud and chimed throughout the night. Beethoven gave up on sleep and in 20 minutes dashed off an improvisation in which you can hear the hours, minutes, and seconds striking throughout. The Moonlight Sonata was a musical poem inspired by insomnia. So which is it? Who knows? Mythologies are organic. They grow throughout time. I was a good student in high school. Not outstanding, but good. I was a nerd. I followed the rules. I was always on time. I thought the kids that carried slide rulers in their belts were cool. I would have been invisible, except I found my way into school plays. That gave me a profile. Combine that with the fact that I was a goody two-shoes and I was a perfect candidate for a fall from grace. After I graduated, a rumor started that I was arrested for selling pot and was sent to Seagaville Prison. This was years before my rock and roll days with the L.A. Slugs. When I came back from my 10-year reunion, my classmates were shocked that the Department of Corrections let me out, not for the original crime of selling pot, but another myth piggybacked onto the first myth. Apparently, after they let me out of prison for pot, I was busted for selling cocaine and killing a man. At the reunion, I was given a wide berth, except for a redhead named Sherry who liked bad boys. Many myths are evil in nature. Racism and anti-Semitism have large doses of mythology that cast the human being into a non-human role. The story that Jews use blood of Arab children to make matzahs is not terribly different than the story that black people have tales. It's the story of man as a monster. Many myths are seductive, attributing superhuman qualities to the group being attacked. The Jews control the world. The gay people have a fashion sense. Whether a myth pretends to be empowering or destructive, it acts as a force of social erosion. We rely on them because it's too hard to think all of the time. A myth works like the last channel button on our spiritual remotes. So how do we know what we know when most of what we know is wrong? The answer is unpleasant. I don't think we can. Just like the weatherman, we live in perpetual doubt. The only bridge between doubt and certainty is imagination. Moving from point A to point B without knowing where you are or where you'll end up requires faith. Without faith, man is either an animal or a machine. With it, he could sense the divine. It could lead us to what is true. Mythology 
is not to be trusted. It has no interest in truth. It only likes a good story. A postscript. On one of my recent trips to Dallas, I had breakfast at the International House of Pancakes with my dad and my brother's son, Andrew. Andrew is a man of many talents, part rabbi, part archaeologist, part linguist. He had a summer job where he spent his time in the records office. He pulled a Xerox out of his pocket. It was an old photograph of a candy store on Main Street. The name on the store was Tobolowsky Brothers. The store burned down June 26, 1885. That's seven years before Grandfather reached Galveston, meaning the story of Grandfather getting our name from a misunderstanding with a customs officer was yet another myth. And my dream of sharing a bit of common history with Don Corleone was gone. But it was a sweet dream while it lasted. If I listen long enough to That was The Uncomfortable Balance of Lost and Found, a series of stories told by actor Stephen Tobolowsky. Stephen, this whole time we've been telling the wrong story of the origin of Tobolowsky, haven't we? Yeah, it's, it's, <laughs> it's, it's such a shame. But this is, now this is what happens though, David, when you tell a true story. When you tell a true story, it has a chance to keep going on and on, and eventually you find out what a fool you've been. That's true. Uh, I mean, you, uh, I will say this. You've definitely made a fool out of me on a number of occasions. So <laughs> I'm glad shame. we finally uh, got to redeem ourselves here. Yes. Um, well, thanks for tuning into this week's episode of The Tobolowsky Files. Uh, we'll be back next week with another story. In the meantime, Stephen, where can people find more of your work on the Internet this week? Well, actually, my new website is up and running now, thanks to the efforts of David Chen and several others. Uh, and it is at stephentobolowsky.com. And you have to spell my name right, which is S-T-E-P-H-E-N-T as in Tom, O-B as in boy, O-L-O-W-S-K-Y. That is the Russian spelling, dot com. And there you'll be able to find out uh, where I'm going to be on the book tour. You'll be able to uh, get movies like Primary Instinct and Stephen Tobolowsky's Birthday Party and also uh, any of the books, Dangerous Animals Club and the upcoming My Adventures with God coming out. What is that? April the 17th. It's coming, David. Well, I see a lot of events here on the site, uh, a lot of book signings you'll be in. You're going all over the place. I've been to a Stephen Tobolowsky live performance, several of them. They're great. So would encourage you to check that out. Find all of my stuff at DaveChen.net. I have a blog there. I'm updating it frequently. I'm also on Facebook at Facebook.com slash DaveChen.net. Thanks for listening to the Tobolowsky Files. Find every episode of this podcast at TobolowskyFiles.com. We'll see you next week. Adios. Adios.